last night in my sleep I wish I could see outside But he tacked the boards on my window Gosh, it's dark I can't hit the surf Can't drag, can't do a dog to get up on stage and jam. I want to see Billy Joel, see if he can still tickle ivories. Let me see. I know Mick Jagger won't be here tonight. He's gonna have to stay in England. But I'd like to see us in the Coliseum and him Limley Stadium because he's always been chicken shit to get on stage with the Beach Boys. No, I don't like Mike Love at all. No. Why is that problem? Because I don't like his, his attitude is too egotistical. You can't be around the guy. More, five minutes around him is that's all I can take. Someone hold my nose. Yeah. Hold my nose. Just, just do it for me as this says a joke. Right, that's so silly. All right, all right. squeeze, squeeze. <laughs> you guys. Oh, that's that's how, that, how it used to sound. Dang. Of course, he's not going to like that. <laughs> I'd like to see Mick Jagger get out on his stage and do I Get Around versus Jumpin' Jack Flash any day now. Now, a lot of people are going to go out of this room tonight thinking that Mike Love is crazy. Well, they've been saying that for years. Ain't nothing new about that. But what I'm talking about is forget this room. The United States is 6% of the population in the world. That's why I came here tonight with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad! Salam Alaikum! This next song, I am almost embarrassed to say in such a highly conscious community that the next song is actually gender-specific. Welcome, everybody. All right. Episode five of the Cultural Futures Exchange. This episode is titled The Beach Boys Endless Summer. I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. 
Hello. And we are in for some treats, as you heard in the opening clips. Uh, Mike Love has a lot of interesting things to say. Interesting, maybe in quotes. Um, that last song you heard was a recent uh, creation of his, making a, a social commentary on our uh, current times in COVID and, and no doubt showing what a scary talent he is uh, when fully unleashed. You know, what's uh, interesting, too, is I think about, okay, um, wouldn't it be sad if the last Beatle, it'd be kind of a melancholy thing if the last Beatle to be alive was Ringo Starr. Yeah. You know, he's kind of the last, the last Beatle. It'd kind of be heartwarming and sad. I mean, I think both of them are looking great, you know, Ringo and Paul. And Paul has got good genes, Incredible. you know, and he's yeah. really healthy. Yeah. And he's still doing it. I think it's very likely he'll outlive Ringo, but Ringo is, he looks amazing for his age, you know, and uh, um, he's old, he's slightly older but both of them are doing great. But I think it's going to be really sad if Mike Love is the last Beach Boy. It's not going to be sad. It's going to be terrible. Like, I'm really pulling... I don't think Brian's going to do it. He's looking really bad. There's actually even a new documentary about him that just came out, and I watched the trailer last night um, as if we needed enough fucking documentaries about Brian Wilson. We already had it. It just wasn't made for these times. I think that's probably suitable. And then you know, they're playing some of the newer music he's done and it's just shitty as hell. You know, it sucks. He can't sing at all. And he looks, he looks really unhealthy. He does. Yeah. Um, I would love it for, you know, he's the heart and soul of the Beach Boys. He's, if he's the heart and soul of the Beach Boys, the brain, he's the heart. Then Mike Love is the asshole <laughs> of the Beach Boys. He's like the dirty fucking unwiped asshole. They, they um, would agree, Part of by me the is way. pulling for Al Jardine just because Al Jardine is like, kind of like with Ringo, you know, he's kind of this, He's not even a member of the actual family. He's kind of the side. But I think, unfortunately, Mike Love is looking pretty healthy. You know, yeah. he's probably going to be the one. And he's kind of carried the torch for the Beach Boys for for worse. I'm sure he's been gargling Clorox and putting a UV lamp yeah. up his ass and all the other things Trump told him to do. So uh, <laughs> it's true. I think some of this, though, is going to be me defending him a little bit just because I think I do think he's an integral part of some of my favorite things about the band in the early days. Um, but just, yeah, he's, you know, I'm going to defend him a little bit, not, not much. Mostly I think we're on, on the same page with him. All right. So uh, a reminder of the cultural futures exchange idea CFX is this is the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, et cetera, dive into the context, the time they came out, what's happened since, our take on the future valuation of this item in terms of if you should go long, short, value will go up and down, neutral, all that. Our personal relationships to each of these things, which is an important uh, part of the discussion and show. And again, if this seems like a weird concept, if this is the first episode you're listening to and you're like, what the hell is this? We talk about it in a little more detail in episode one, but don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. It's not that complicated. You'll get into the swing of it uh, pretty soon. The... Other thing I wanted to say about this episode, it's a little bit different. If you've listened to episodes one through four, you kind of get the format where Slip and I kind of go back and forth and tell our personal stories and, and defend or make a case for our particular point of view on short and long, even if we're in agreement, we might have different reasons why. In this particular episode, it will be a bit different because I think we're both like vehemently in agreement on how great this collection of song is, songs are, uh, Endless Summer. Um, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the context, about our thoughts around the band, the time, the impact on our personal lives and histories. 
And part of the reason it's particularly interesting to us is we're both uh, native Southern Californians. Um, so we grew up in the context of Southern California. Our families are have a long history in California. I don't know about your slip, but I mean, mine goes back well over a century. Uh, yeah, my family is more from, you know, they're like a Grapes of Wrath shit. You know, they came over in the, the old Dust Bowl thing, the whole okay. Steinbeck yeah. thing. And um, but they came here, you know, for the uh, for the promise of California. And uh, that was my dad's side of the family. My mom's side of the family is from Texas and Nebraska and stuff. But it was similar. Right. They came around the same time. And they kind of took advantage of the defense industry yep. here. You know, my grand, both my grandfathers worked for the defense industry. My uh, father's um, father uh, worked for Rockwell. And my uh, mother's father was an airplane mechanic for Northrop. So they both lived in, you know, Southern California. And my dad grew up in Venice for a good part of his childhood. So Venice Beach. So he was definitely involved in this culture we're going to talk about a lot today. Yeah, and and to your point, the post world during World War II and post World War II, the defense industry in Southern California was ginormous, ginormous. I mean, it was it really drove uh, drove that would be the word. A lot of the population growth. People think about Hollywood and the movie industry, and that was a big part, still is. But the defense industry, in terms of sheer numbers and number of people employed across the Southland, was huge. Particularly, by the way, in the South Bay area where the Beach Boys story, uh, you know, starts. Uh, That's right. Before, though, uh, we get into that a little bit, I, I wanted to you know, spend a little time talking about surf culture, car culture, Southern California before the Beach Boys. I think everybody listening to this probably is well aware of the Beach Boys and all the other cultural things going around at the same time in the, in the early 60s. But it's important to examine the story before the Beach Boys came on the scene and realize that car culture and surf culture was not new. It wasn't invented by the Beach Boys, certainly. Um, and it wasn't, you know, even new in the in the late 1950s, early uh, 60s. Hot Rod culture, which the Beach Boys obviously sing a lot about on uh, this collection and, and other albums, was around a long time. And, and for no other proof than that, the movie Grease, right, which took place in the 1950s, was centered around very similar uh, car culture and hot rods and racing and racing for pink slips and all that kind of stuff. So that definitely was around, you know, probably even prior to the uh, the, the 1950s, right? Yeah, my my dad was, uh, and my uncle, my uncle Raj, um, you know, were both gearheads for cars you know my dad still is he has a 57 bel air he works on all the time i was just visiting him for things in the 50s and 60s right like that's that's the age right this is in the 50s yeah Yeah, this is uh 50s and early 60s right around this time right and um he has old 57 bel air he tinkers with all the time you know that he rebuilt and stuff and you know he worked in the auto industry for his whole life you know he was a service mechanic and a service manager my uncle didn't do that but he was also really good with cars. Yep. Um, and so they were really into that, you know, that hot rod culture. That was a huge thing um, for both, for a lot of my family members. And in Southern California, arguably the car uh, capital of the world, you know, it was just a, all over the place, a big deal. Um, right. LA is a car city. Car city. Right? They yep. basically prevented public transportation, right? We know that Roger Rabbit story is part partially true. They actually prevented public transportation from taking over in LA 
And it's, you know, just being there last week, the traffic is insane still. Yep. Um, and it's, it's a car town, you know, there's t- the freeways are so intricate. You have to take 50 freeways just to get 10 miles. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a, it's car oriented, like no other city I think in the world. I think certainly that's the case to its great detriment today, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You know, look, uh, shifting to surf culture, surf, surfing has been around for thousands of years, really the, uh, the Polynesians in the Pacific Ocean uh, domains were been surfing for a long, long time. Uh, Hawaiian culture, way back even in the 1800s, there was a lot of surfing stuff. In right, Captain, Captain Cook, Cook, right, the famous story right. of Captain Cook going to Hawaii and seeing a seeing a you know someone riding a big piece of wood on a wave and saying, "What the hell yep. is that?" Right, and then you had in you know then you had you know over the over the years they did that and then it was brought to America by. Um, I can't pronounce his name, Duke, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he basically was an Olympian, a, a Olympic swimming championship in like, I think the 1912 Olympics. And then he brought, you know, he was pictured, you see these surfboards he used, they were like, you know, 16 feet high, just big slabs of wood, right. you know, nothing like what we the little kind of epoxy, uh, boards and that we use today. Um, and he, uh, he brought, he kind of popularized it. And then in the twenties, he was doing kind of teaching of it. And that's when the twenties that kind of first took off, but it was really after world war two that it became a craze in the, in the fifties. Absolutely. And, you know, again, there were surfing contests in Southern California as early as the 1920s. There's evidence of that in, in Southern California and perhaps even Northern California. There was actually a life magazine cover story from August of 1950 about beach bums. And the the crux of it was really sort of romanticizing surfers who lived in their cars or in surf shacks along Southern California beaches, having dropped out of society, you know, really speaking out against, you know, the post-military, post-World War II military industrial thing. Uh, maybe reacting to a lot of those defense contractor stuff, saying they're going to live on the beach, living that beach lifestyle. And that was growing to some degree, I think, in the 1950s. So much so that in 1959, there is a movie you may have heard of, uh, especially the older folks out there, called Gidget. Um, It later turned into a TV show, right? I think with Sally Field. But there's a 1959 movie of Gidget with Sandra Dee, uh, the same Sandra D. We were talking about Greece that the character Sandy was singing about, right, in, in that famous uh, song and, and scene from it. And there, the 1959 movie had an interesting plot, right, which is this young teenage girl is about to, you know, turn 17. Uh, she's, you know, be- between junior and senior years in high school. All her friends are, you know, looking for husbands at that point, it seems like, uh, you know, different times. And uh, she doesn't, you know, her parents want her to be, get serious about finding a husband and fixing her up with different guys. And she doesn't want to do that. Her other friends are kind of the boy crazy things. And she goes to the beach and meets a surfer named Moondoggy, which I don't know how many surfer movies there's a character named Moondoggy. That seems to be like a, a required right. uh, character name, right? Um, I, maybe the Frankie and Annette movies had that character too. I don't know. Um, she falls in love with this guy, you know, a little bit older, handsome. He doesn't have any interest in her because she's very tomboyish and very kind of, uh, you know, young looking and short hair and all that kind of stuff. Uh, she wants to learn how to surf. Her parents, begs her parents to buy her a surfboard. 
she starts hanging out with a you know a bunch of surfers uh you know in this in her local area there led by the big kahuna another kind of canonical character in all of these movies yeah he's like the gandalf of the uh of the surfing yes. world i guess <laughs> yeah he, exactly yeah. He, he's the he's the king of that little uh, beach there. He's a Korean War veteran uh, who had dropped out of society. Clearly modeled on some of the guys who were in that uh, Life magazine article from from 1950. Uh, Moon Doggies kind of comes from a middle class uh, background, but he ambitions to be like the big Kahuna, uh, played by Cliff Robertson in this movie. And you got to get the idea, you know, Gidget and the big kahuna sort of develop a, a friendship and she starts questioning his motivations about dropping out society. He's the big kahuna is going to fly off at the end of the summer to go to South America to keep surfing there. And Moondoggy wants to go with him instead of going to college or whatever he's supposed to be doing. And uh, he has a pet bird, of course, like all pirates uh, who winds up dying in a movie or something. You get the idea. The, the point is, is that these tropes around the whole beach th- scene and the beach lifestyle were certainly not new. Uh, when the Beach Boys came around, they were already popularized in a very mainstream movie in 1959. But I think it's safe to say that whatever the culture was in the early 1950s, mid-1950s, it was picking up momentum and becoming much more of a thing as we entered the 1960s, right? Right. So, okay, so let's talk about surf music before the Beach Boys. There wasn't a lot, but there was some, and a lot of it was kind of happening around the same time that the Beach Boys were starting to figure out that they were going to become the Beach Boys. A lot of it was instrumental music. Uh, Most famously, most people have heard of Dick Dale, who was a, a Southern California native and played unceasingly throughout Southern California during that time. I think he played multiple times a week in various uh, standing gigs. Um, was Obviously, if you know Dick Dale's music, he's an excellent guitarist, a really, really good guitarist. Um, was getting a lot of interest as being sort of a, a, I don't know, some kind of emblem of that movement, or he was appeared a lot, certainly, in the South Bay, uh, Southern right. California, right? But he's actually he actually lived in Orange County and and I've been to his house. Um, it's in Balboa in New, near Newport yep. Beach. He has this um, he had this custom van that was all painted with waves and stuff. My dad drove us by there. Um, and in preparation for this, you know, we talked about me talking to my dad ab- about the Beach Boys because, you know, he's um, he obviously likes them. And I'll talk more about that when I talk about my personal history, how growing up with you know, his nostalgia for that whole period kind of influenced me. Um, and, you know, when we talk about Endless Summer in particular, I was right at that, you know, right when Endless Summer came out, I was all into that too. Um, but, you know, it was funny because I was talking, he does this thing I totally do, right? Obviously, I like something that's somewhat mainstream and someone goes, oh yeah, you like this and that's so great. And then I'll just try to be hipper than them and I'll one-up them and go, yeah, that's that's the popular stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I like the other stuff. And so my dad, when I talked about the Beach Boys, and I know he loved the Beach Boys, because I remember this would have been gold for this podcast, but I couldn't find it. A long time ago in the, in the 90s, I was visiting my dad in Southern California and I found this cassette tape that just didn't have anything on it. And I put it in his player and it's my dad, my stepmom and another couple, some really good friends of theirs doing Beach Boys karaoke, completely wasted out of their fucking minds. I mean, it's like it's like 
a parody of drunk people. They are slurring. My dad's like, la, 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 you know, just completely wasted. And, you know, of course, um, my cousin Greg and I, I visited him in Southern California, too. And we were talking about this and I was like, yeah, I want that tape because I want to play it for the for the show. But I just couldn't find it. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere. But um, I remember bringing this back to our house in San Francisco and everyone was like my roommate, Jason and Greg, were just freaking out over it because it was a, it was an amazing find, this drunken tape of my of my family. So obviously they loved, you know, all that stuff. They were nostalgic for it. But when I talked to my dad this week, he's all, yeah, you know, they were fine. But I was really into the the, the Dick Dale. And that was the real surf. Center. Yeah. You know, that's the real thing. And and, you know. It's true at the time, um, you know, when the Beach Boys started playing, I think there were was a, at least one concert where the the crowd threw vegetables, tomatoes and shit at them because they thought they were posers, you know, because they weren't like Dick Dale and and these things and the, you know, the ventures and stuff was the more real surf sound. And this stuff with these harmonies and vocals was was not, right. you know, obviously the, the the hardcore surfers didn't really look upon the Beach Boys as legit. And as we'll talk about, they really except for one of them never really surfed um, at the time. So yeah, this, the surf sound was pretty much an instrumental version of what it was like to surf, right? The sounds were, uh, you know, cymbal crashes, which would emulate waves and stuff like that. And um, that was what was the music of the culture at the time. The legitimate music of the culture. Right, right? The, yeah. the original surf music. Yeah. Even though there were other vocal bands you know, obviously Jan and Dean were were first. Um, they were a little ahead of the Beach Boys and they sound very similar, but it was limited. I think mostly it was instrumental, like you mentioned. Yep. Well, I mean, look, the Beach Boys were obviously around at that time. They were co-located with all this. They, they're from Hawthorne, which if you're not familiar with the Southern California geography is in the mix right down there in the South Bay. You know, Mike Love uh, and and Dennis, the story goes, or one of the stories, there's multiple stories, were hanging around in Redondo Beach, which is right next door there. They were uh, doing some fishing. They were looking at, you know, a lot of the people surfing around there. Redondo Beach is definitely one of those uh, surfing hotspots, still today probably, um, and certainly was at the time. And they're like, hey, look, all this instrumental stuff is great. But what, you know, we do and what they had been doing is more vocal stuff. Right. And, you know, Carl Wilson had a had a band. They were all in. It was just called Carl and the Passions. There was later a, um, a Beach Boys album, I think, named Carl and the Passions. Right. At some right. Point. That's right. And there I think it was 69 or 70 at the you know really early 70s. Stuff. Yep. And they were like, look, you know, we're pretty good at these harmonies, acapella stuff. Why don't we kind of and the, all the surf music is really, you know, taking off. Why don't we think about doing something here with that? And that wasn't, they weren't the only ones with that idea, right? There are a bunch of other bands out there right in the same area at the same time with names like the Hang Tens, the Woodies, <laughs> the Wood uh, right? you know, the, and, and so forth. And the Beach Boys actually started off life named at the Pendletons after, or Pendletones rather, Named after right, after the Pendleton, Pendleton shirts, shirts, which surfers wore. Yep. That was like a surfer outfit. But we should also talk about the fact that they there was a musical background in their family, yep. right? Mike Love's mother, Glee, was uh, hugely into music. She was a singer. And obviously the Beach Boys, the Wilson brothers' father, Murray, was a failed, somewhat failed songwriter, right? He was he was trying to write songs. He, he basically ran a machinery import business as his main occupation, but he was constantly writing songs. He actually had a few songs that were released. 
they were kind of these cornball kind of country songs. You know, when he, when he first started with the the boys, he wanted them to sing about yellow roses and shit like that. You know, just kind of old fangled stuff. Like and, Lawrence um, Welk shit. Lawrence Welk yeah. shit. Yeah, exactly. And he, uh, you know, he thought he was some kind of genius. So he had this song One Step, Two Step that was a minor, minor country rock hit kind of. Um, I think I'm getting the song title right. But yeah, he was they you know he was music was around them when they started and he was you know when they first started as the Pendletones, he was right there he was like i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you guys what to do i'm gonna run the show um and this would be a constant conflict over the years um we should also mention that he was extremely abusive um and uh you know one story out of the very salacious uh kind of trashy bestseller heroes and villains by stephen gaines is that you know, he would discipline, he was very, he was a disciplinarian. He would hit the boys. You know, there's also this legend that Brian's partial deafness was caused by him smacking him upside the head. Um, there's a story that's insane in the book, which I don't believe for a minute, uh, that he made Brian, uh, take a shit in front of the family <laughs> as punishment. He made him poo. They just poo right in front of the family. Like in the living room um, or, you know, I don't, you know, yeah. In the living room, just fucking take a shit. Or I don't know what 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 the context was. And this was something I think Brian might have said later. But, you know, we know Brian's mental health, probably as a result of a lot of this abuse, was uh, impaired. So who knows? And he was on a lot of drugs and he was under the influence of Eugene Landy, all stuff we can talk about. But um, we don't know that's true. But again, it's very similar to the Jacksons, you know, with the with the. Um, the Jackson patriarch uh, being abusive. And we know what happened with Michael. Yeah. Right. He became a pedophile basically uh so so that's kind of the context too is that this was a very abusive family but they all were incredibly musically inclined and talented um at least most of them were <laughs> you know we'll talk about that too maybe less so with dennis but still yeah actually dennis is another one that you know has been reappraised over the years right his album pacific ocean blue is pretty acclaimed a lot it's become kind of a cult classic obviously his voice is completely alcohol ravaged by that point but the songwriting is pretty solid and he had a few good songs but yeah he was definitely not carl had this angelic voice and uh you know obviously brian was the true genius behind the band he was you know really we call it a band but it's kind of brian using the other other singers as instruments really and being, you know, more like a Phil Spector kind of character. Yeah, I was more but, referring um, to Dennis's uh, Karen Carpenter-esque drumming ability. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would, you know, I listening to some of these early songs, too, I don't even know how much Dennis drumming there is. You know, they use studio musicians so much, even, you know, but they use the Wrecking Crew later. But even on the early tracks, some of the musicianship, there's just no way the, the Beach Boys are playing. Yeah, I agree. It was early um, Wrecking it's Crew It's too stuff, accomplished. Yeah. It's too technically solid. 100% agree. And look, I don't think they've ever claimed that they were playing on any of those either. So no, no. Um, all right. So they form the Pendletones. Uh, they changed their name through a bunch of things we could talk about, but really they changed their name to the Beach Boys. Um, and in October of 1961, in the height of all this explosion around all this beach stuff going on, they recorded a single um, the A side of the single was a song called Surfing and Surfin with an, you know, an N. And the B side is is uh, a Luau. I'll play a little bit of both of those here. So let's listen to Surfin first. Cool. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, 
serve with ball pop dip 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 ball pop dip dip i got up this morning turned on my radio i was checking out the serpentine so all the elements of the Beach Boys are there, even in their most early form. And even Mike Love's uh, whiny teenage voice there, uh, yeah. very prominent uh, as well. And as you say, uh, an important part of their sound, right? Yeah, he, he still sounds like a teenager, except, you know, it's just like an old pitiful version <laughs> um, of that same same voice and and you can hear like it's very 50s right do up um, and all that the bomb bomb dip yeah. dip that's something that mike love came up with for the song and it's pretty much straight out of you know blue moon and and those kind of songs it's very doo and they would maintain that for the most part um but i think they would develop you know the harmonies more you don't hear the harmonies on this as much as you do on the later stuff um but you hear it you you definitely hear it and it's pretty like you said it's pretty much what they would sound like well and look um, this is if more developed absolutely and and this is there's no hiding here they didn't have sophisticated equipment you're hearing that they sounded pretty good they were skilled at singing together already although as you mentioned the sophistication of their harmonies and the the writing of the harmonies would get much more complex but it was, you know the basics were still there and they they sounded really good um Here's the B-side, a song called Luau, which they did not write, um, but... I've never heard this. Very dated sounding, but again, you could hear the, yeah. the basics of the Beach Boys there very clearly um, in here, October 1961, right? One thing about this we should mention that's really cool and interesting that that I learned recently and I didn't even think about was that um you know obviously these songs uh not Lu I don't think Luau is but but Surfin Surfin is on the first album Surfin Safari which obviously Surfin Safari would be the next song they would do and be bigger um but that's that album uncharacteristic of the time and uncharacteristic of some of these early Beach Boys albums like Surfin USA which is like half instrumentals which again, who's playing on those? Yeah. You know, it's it ain't like Dennis. they're, they kind of, you know, a lot of filler, but this album has almost all original material. Now, a lot of it's not terribly good. You know, it's, it's not stuff that, you know, and even surfing isn't on endless summer, you know, and, and, and the, um, you know, there's some real throwaway tracks. Like there's a song called Chugalug <laughs> that's basically about drinking massive amounts of root beer. You know, it's in Country Fair where they have this barker yelling out these things. And Mike loves, I got to win a doll for my, you know, a stuffed toy for my girl yeah. kind of song. You know, just real hokey, but so Americana. Yep. And um, but what's cool is I do think it's really neat that uh, they didn't do a lot of covers on this. You know, that even though the songs like, you know, Luau in particular you know, and, and surfing, they're not super original yet. I don't think they fully developed that sound, but, um, it's cool that they were mostly originals on that record. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I, I had never heard Luau before, you know, doing research for, for this show mm -hmm. and it's there. You can, yeah, that's the beach boys and, yeah. and, and the elements are there, you know, as this was being released, this was recorded in October. This is released in November. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, post-processing, mixing any, or any of that stuff at this time. The whole beach scene thing was really taking off, right? In the early 60s here, you had the Frankie and Annette beach movies that were coming out like multiple times a year, one run after the other. You had the, uh, you know, music like the Wipeout song, right? You had 
Dick Dale getting right. more popular with things like Let's Go Tripping. You had Janet Dean getting popular as well. And the Beach Boys also were starting to incorporate not just the surfing motifs, right, but the car motifs, which form a lot of the songs or the basis for a lot of songs on Endless Summer and, and beyond. And the, the source of a lot of those lyrics and ideas about cars and car culture and racing and all of those things really came from a guy named Roger Christian. Um, Roger Christian was a very much a car enthusiast. He was very involved in the Southern California hot rod sort of scene. He was well known as part of it. He later became known as the poet of the strip, you know, the car, your car racing strip. But he was also a DJ on a news station in Southern California, KFWB, which if you grow up in Southern California, you can hear the jingles for that in your head because it was just omnipresent in AM radio in the 70s and certainly before that. Um, and Roger Christian was really, a, he was a poet. You know, he tried to write a lot of poetry around cars and he developed a friendship with Brian Wilson. And Brian very maybe... Um, smartly and and with a good sense of this would be a good uh, a topic to mine, spent a lot of time with Roger learning about car stuff, learning about the terms, learning about lyrics that he could put into songs and how to phrase those. And Roger Christian really played a very fundamental and important role in a lot of the themes and ideas around cars and the Beach Boys, right? Well, Brian would collaborate with lyricist, right? So even before Roger Christian, he was working with this guy, I think I've got him getting his name right, Peter Usher, right? So he was working with him. Um, and then he would, uh, I think Murray had a fight with Roger, you know, with uh, Peter Usher, because he would cause conflict and, and stress no matter where he went. Um, and And so they kind of broke, you know, broke up that relationship. And then that's when Roger Christian came around. Roger Christian heard 409. And he's like, yeah, the, these guys kind of have, this is cool, but they, they don't really know shit, right. you know, and, and listening to these songs, there is a kind of poetry to them. And I've never understood, you know, I, I should have probably listened to one of these songs with my dad and had him tell me what a fucking 413 is and shit. You know, I don't know a uh, pause attraction, you know, all this shit. I don't know what any of this stuff is. I don't know anything about cars, but obviously you can tell from the lyrics that Roger Christian knew a fucking shit ton about cars. Absolutely. And that's what gives them such a, uh, you know, it captures that so well. And it is poetic. You know, it's it's amazingly poetic. I would argue it's m as poetic or more than the shit he did with Van Dyke Parks, the kind of you know, somewhat nonsensical, weird lyrics he did with Smile. But this, again, yeah, he was collaborating with these people. He collaborated with Roger Christian. Then later with Pet Sounds, he would collaborate with a an advertising man named Tony Asher, right, on some of those lyrics. And then, of course, Van Dyke Parks. Right. You know, so it was... Because Brian was, you know, similar to Elton John, he had the musical chops, but he didn't have the lyrical chops as much. Even though, I'll, although I'll argue some of the songs he did, like In My Room, is lyrically fantastic, you know, in, but yeah, that's, anyway, <laughs> so, so that's, I just wanted to interject with that stuff. Yeah, and, and look, they, they had a partnership. I think they recorded, you know, a dozen songs or more together. Um, the one, many of which we're going to talk about and play a little bit more that were on Endless Summer, but there are others not on Endless Summer, like Ballad of Old Betsy, Car Crazy Cutie, Cherry Cherry yeah. Coop, uh, Spirit of America, which was also another compilation, you know, title. That was the follow-up yep. to Endless Summer when people wanted That's more. That's right. right. That's right. Uh, no Go Showboat, I Do, <laughs> In the Parking Lot, 
you know, some of these maybe are not going to win any, you know, awards for the most creative uh, titles or anything like that. But one that is one of their early albums, too, with Little Do Scoop is almost like a concept album about just about cars. cars that's right. And, and they had actually re-released some of the songs that they had come out or, or automotive, because I think Little Honda might be on there, too, which is about a motorcycle. Same thing, though. Same kind of thing. Um, but. Um, Little Do Scoop was actually on a previous record, I think. I get them mixed up, but uh, there and were then so many. they kind of put it back on there just to have an album all about cars. Yep. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, and and look, the um, the uh, song that we'll talk about later, one of the songs on Endless Summer is Shut Down. And the, they originally going to call it, um, they wanted to call it Attention Accident because it was so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like all the stuff that they were doing and racing around like dead man's curve and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Right. So it, it's pretty funny. And, and the, the other part, just to, to highlight here is how, inter, how integral uh, car culture was to the surf culture, because you wanted to go where the waves were um, and cars was what would take you there. You couldn't get on a public bus with your surfboard, especially those, you know, 27 foot surfboards at the time or whatever. Um, you had to have a car. It was right. It was another form of thrill seeking. That's too, right. Right. You're surfing, you're braving the waves uh, and cars. You're, you know, you're seeing what the it's adrenaline fueled activity. And so it went they went hand in hand. Certainly. The same guys like my dad who were into surfing because my dad was also a surfer in Venice Beach. They were into cars. It was like things guys did. Then. That's right. Yes. And, the you know, the whole thing with the Woodies. You know, those were essentially early minivans that could hold your your surfboard, right? Yep, that's right. Um, so those were really popular just for very practical reasons, but then became an integral part of the culture uh, there as well. And, you know, look, when you start to have this explosion of attention on this culture and these various tenants of the culture, you just start a frenzy, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about what that leads to later, um, but there was just a feeding, but frenzy. we should say though, yeah. we should say real quick though, that this car thing has been a constant throughout rock music. You know, it's, um, the beach boys were so influential with all these car songs. I think, you know, there were other people doing car songs probably, but no one had the impact that they had probably because of Roger Christian's, you know, lyrical talents. Um, but you can trace this all the way to you know, a uh, deep purple highway star. That's right. You know, that's a car song that's probably influenced by this because those guys were, when they were growing up, probably heard this stuff. I mean, the beach boys were huge. We talk more about this, but the beach boys were huge in England. As well, I can't drive 55 is, is another one, right? I can't drive 55. You've got Bruce Springsteen racing in the street, which is naming all these car parts, yeah. you know, similar to 409. It's naming the, you know, I've got a 396 with fuely heads, uh, inject fuel injection on the floor, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, all this detail that is di directly influenced by the Beach Boys. You can't say it's well, not. you have stuff like um, Red Barchetta, you have stuff like Panama, yeah, right? Red Barchetta, yeah. even, yeah. yeah, Rush, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, and, and for all the same reasons that you're talking about, like car culture, thrill seeking, it's all part of rock, it's all part of all the of the uh, testosterone fueled things, right? <laughs> that uh, guys right. are into, and the, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention here is that the marketing that went along with this was was part of the story. And the the uh, it, you could say later on it became a much bigger part of the story. But very early on, 
Um, the Beach Boys were part of the marketing machine and selling the idea of Southern California, selling the, the mythos around all this beach culture, surf culture, car culture. And, and there's a company that was getting its start around the time right next door uh, to where the Beach Boys grew up, a company called Mattel. Um, and that company had a product, uh, boy and girl dolls named Barbie and Ken. And the early record company uh, brain trust there was like, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if the Beach Boys were singing a song that could help market these dolls, Barbie and Ken? And they even got, uh, you know, some one of the executives at the car company to record, uh, to write a song about Barbie and to get the Beach Boys to record it. And so, wow. yeah, it, I did not know. That yeah, it, it, it's That's crazy. it's really weird. And and again, this is all happening in the same geographical area. And, you know, it, it's a, it's part of the story that uh, we're going to continue to talk about here. But yeah, and you have to you have to give credit to the Beach Boys, because what they did with these surfing and car songs is they exported this to the That's world. Right. Right. So Dick Dale was popular locally and he had a few minor miserly and whatnot. Um, but none of that music really had an impact beyond uh, at least the United States and probably even California locally, you know, most of it was local music, but the beach boys, I mean, you have people in areas where you can't surf at all and uh, they're exporting this Americana to the world successfully. I mean, they're huge in Japan. They were huge in, you know, rural America and they were able to uh, through Brian's, you know, brilliance, uh, and their incredible harmonies and just the, you know, the kind of feel good music they were creating, they were able to export this myth globally. And Capital saw them as just this, you know, money machine. They just kept pumping out hit after hit after hit after hit. Um, and we'll, we could talk about this later, too. But I just want to mention they also survived the British invasion through all of that. You know, even most of this music, you know, a lot of times rock historians look at this period of the early 60s as just like this wasteland. And then the Beatles come as saviors, right. you know, to save all the music. But the Beach Boys were going strong through all of that. Even after the Beach, even after the Beatles were around, they were still hitting number ones with I Get Around and things like that with the same formula. So that to me has always been fascinating because you think, you know, things like groups like Fabian and even Elvis Presley were just fading away. Right. But the Beach Boys started in that same kind of supposed wasteland period. But they never, you know, obviously they would fade a bit as the late 60s came. And we could talk about that. But, you know, right when the Beatles were hitting, the Beach Boys were, you know, giving them somewhat of a run of their money. They weren't as big as the Beatles, but they were they were huge and they were the biggest American band. This is a fact I found out. I did not realize they were the biggest American band as far as singles and albums. Uh, of the entire 1960s. I did not know that's crazy. So that's pretty crazy. But if you think about it, it makes sense, right? They're only, what are their competition? Credence, you know, they were only around for a few years. So, um, you know, but it makes sense. Anyway. You were, wanted to talk about Phil Spector, right? A little bit here. Yeah, just because, I mean, we're, you're talking more about the cultural things now, but as far as the influence on Brian, you know, what influenced him, right? We didn't really talk about that much. Uh, because we talk about the car and the culture, but we don't really talk about musically what influenced him. And obviously the biggest influence on him was a group called the Four Freshmen, right? They were a harmony group in the 50s, kind of that old, maybe a little bit of that Lawrence Welk thing. You know, the, Be- the Beach Boys actually covered one of their songs called Graduation Day, which would appear on uh, the follow-up to Endless Summer, Spirit of America. 
um, which was all also kind of that Amer. There's we didn't really talk about the high school stuff, right? We've got be true to your school. We got and, that coming up later. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, but but one thing that was hugely influenced on Brian um, later it would be the Beatles, and he would try to compete with them. But before that was Phil Spector, and um, Phil Spector was huge at the time, and you know his kind of production techniques would influence Brian uh, to an amazing extent. He was Brian's absolute hero. Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the developments he would make in his early years, as far as his strides musically forward, his, uh, you know, going beyond just the, you know, kind of doo-woppy surf and sound to more of the harmonies and complex melodies, uh, was all based on his love of Phil Spector's production. And he kind of became his own Phil Spector with the Beach Boys, just the way Phil Spector used the Ronettes and these girl groups as instruments. Brian would use the Beach Boys. I just wanted to make sure we got that in there because it's so important. Definitely. Uh, to what the sound would be. No, for sure. For sure. And and we'll talk about that more when we get into some of the music a little bit later here. Um, just kind of circling back to the Southern California mythology and the export of that, that you were uh, just talking about that. Um, really, it became like most things do, this discovery of this subculture uh, around surfing and cars and stuff like that in Southern California, um, exploration of it in some of these early, you know, cultural artifacts, like we were just talking about the marketing of it, the explosion of it. And then that ultimately always turns into exploitation and destruction. And, you know, it's an endless loop that happens with many, many things. And this certainly isn't the only one, but you know, we grew up, Slip and I grew up in a Southern California landscape that was essentially the aftermath to a lot of this. You know, he was talking, you were talking before about the um, urban density and the traffic of Southern California today. Right. Um, it was not so delightful when we were little kids in the 70s either, right? And the growth of Southern California, the, the population influx from Kansas and, you know, Oklahoma and the Midwest and the East Coast not solely driven by this idea of the beach and all this stuff. Certainly there were jobs and so forth and the rest, but it certainly helped bring the, you know, the idea that we should move to Southern California. This is the place we want to be that, you know, if you're in Wisconsin in February, going and surfing on the beach and girls in bikinis and all that is going to sound pretty appealing to a lot of folks. Right. Yeah, Definitely. The, the thing about this that it becomes, though, what I found interesting is that going from 1961, 15 years later, we had an album that we'll no doubt talk about in its own episode, Hotel California by the Eagles. And there's really a direct line between those two. The idea, this, this exploration of California and, and sort of the very best that California has to offer and run the weather and, and the surf and the fun and the, you know, all those really Americana things goes through this kind of filter of the Laurel Canyon singers and, and things like that. And even non-Laurel Canyon singers who referred to that, like Robert Plant with going to California, right? On Led Zeppelin four. Right. Um, but you had obviously under the influence of, uh, the very Californianized Joni Mitchell. No, That's like a Joni Mitchell song by any other name. I, I, well, she um, has a song called California on blue. That's yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. There's no doubt that Jimmy Page was influenced by her. I mean, he's, He's a huge, rabid fan of her. As, as I think um, you and I both are as well, so there's no doubt yeah. why, right? And and so, the anyway, the, the whole California thing went filtered through that, and I think it just became this, there's a darker side that was developing, as it usually does. 
that the eagles, I think, were trying to examine in, in Hotel California. And in particular, the, so- the last song, I think, on Hotel California is one called The Last Resort. And the, the lyrics of that are really just sort of like, what have we wrought? We just exploited the shit out of this right. thing that was once great. And look, the Eagles, I think, were trying to be more ambitious with Hotel California. It wasn't just about Southern California. It was like about kind of environmentalism and all those sorts of themes as well, capitalistic exploitation and things. But the SoCal piece of that, that metaphor, right, was chosen for a reason. Right. And you have like Victim of Love and Life in the Fast Lane and a lot of those songs that were absolutely about that kind of dark side of the lifestyle there, right? But you also have to look at, there's a, not only a thread subject matter wise that sort of like you're saying turns darker, but what is all this music have in common? It's all harmonic, right? It's all harmony driven. And that's, that begins with the Beach Boys. So if you, even though the Beach Boys harmonies are very different than the stuff that Joni Mitchell and, and CSNY would do, they're all based on that same harmonic harmony is the basis, right? The Eagles, again, all just like the Beach Boys, all fantastic vocalists in their own yeah. right. And harmony is at the core of well, the music. Well, maybe not Joe Walsh. So that's got to be... Maybe huh? not Joe Walsh. Oh, Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is awesome. <laughs> Come on. He's my favorite member, man. <laughs> he added he added the edge that the Eagles yeah, needed. You know? the, there's a drug um, version anyway, of Desperado. You know, we could talk, we'll talk about Hotel California. I'll talk, I'll, 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 wave the flag, wave my uh, freak flag okay, for Joe okay, Walsh. Cause I, I love Joe Walsh, but yeah, as a, yeah, he's not, he doesn't have that angelic voice. He can sing, yeah, for sure. but he's not, yeah, he's not, he's not like Henley or, or, um, Frey where they just, you know, have incredible vocal chops cool. and, and these amazing, or, or God, what's Timoth- his name? Timothy uh, Schmidt. And you know, uh, no, the other guy, uh, kind of blanking Matt, my, Meisner, Randy Meisner, Randy Meisner yeah. greatest, greatest, Take it to the limit, greatest yeah. vocal performance of all time. One of yeah, one of the greatest, great, right? Singer, so yeah. it's like um, you know, these yeah, and Schmidt is an amazing voice. We're kind of maybe talking too much about the Eagles. That's for another episode, but I I just wanted to say the harmony is a thread. They they had to be influenced by that, right? The California sound is harmonic. Even Fleetwood Mac, a British band, you know, when they got these California guys in there, you know, with uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, you have all of a sudden a lot more of the harmony. And of, co- of course, we know how Lindsey was influenced by Brian Wilson, you know, major idolized influence. him so, and talks about it yeah. constantly. If you so I didn't even think about this when you brought this up and you're talking about the the content of the lyrics and the culture and how it's changing. But it's also what is the basis of the California sound? It's that harmony. It's the Beach Boys. That's right. Pretty much the Beach Boys are the basis of that. That's right. And and look, you know, there there were other bands that were dealing with the the aftermath of this exploitation and explosion. Um, one band in particular that the Eagles called out in Hotel California, Steely Dan, the Steely Knives, right. um, were trying to deal with some of these same subjects, probably with a little more skill than the Eagles did. Yeah, but yeah. nevertheless, the same... The same thing. And and this dark side continued beyond just kind of like the drunken starlet ideas that were explored in some of the Eagles songs, right? You had, you know, a lot of drug stuff creeping into the culture in the 70s at that time, the surf punk stuff, the birth of skateboarding and the Lords of Dogtown. And you're talking about Venice and all that, that the whole skateboarding culture um, was really becoming its own cultural memes and all that. And, you know, and really epitomized in the early 80, of course, early 80s, of course, with the character of Jeff Spicoli, which is an entirely different topic we'll get into later, the different time. But 
basically the you know the beach boys have as you mentioned been mining these same things especially the americana pieces and the the maybe more positive aspects and uh, aspirational aspects of surf and car and beach culture for the better part now of what 60 years right and right the the real thing also to think about here is in the early 60s they were they were a band um driven obviously by Brian Wilson's musical genius and the Beach Boys the rest of the Beach Boys their vocal uh, capabilities maybe not as much instrumentally but certainly vocally there's no question and you had Brian and we'll talk about this a little bit and, and much more when we do an episode on pet sounds and beyond but once Brian really left the band you just had you know some people really questionably being a nostalgia act to some degree Right, but that that also is important because that starts from the album we're talking yep. about, right? That that happened because of Endless Summer. If you look at the the Beach Boys released a live album right before Endless Summer called Beach Boys in Concert. And it's got all this stuff from like 66 to 73. Like they barely touch. They do do some stuff, the early songs, of course they have to. That's what people really wanted to hear. But I don't think people really knew the Beach Boys really knew how much they wanted to hear it until American Graffiti and then Endless Summer. So this nostalgia engine, you know, this this business as a nostalgia act, as an oldies act, started then. And it was absolutely they were bigger than they ever were, you know, in a sense, not maybe on the charts, but as far as concert, uh, you know, revenue. Um, and so that's. That's important to talk about this, you know, how they became a nostalgia act, because that's when it started was Endless Summer. And obviously going on through things like Kokomo, right, which, you know, you could say what you want about it. It's yeah, a huge hit. It was, it was their it was number one song. Yeah. And it's actually kind of in some ways their biggest hit. They it was the biggest hit um, by numbers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. That's what I thought. I wasn't sure. But yeah, that makes sense. And And really, if you look at it. A little critically, it's essentially a remake of like a conflagration of like all sorts of other songs they've done, really, where they're calling out different, you know, beach locations. It's like calling out the different surf locations. It's just a name check of a bunch of aspirationally beautiful surfing sunset locations. Other than and other than some production flourishes, it could have been written in 1962. That's what's so amazing to me. Even though I hate Kokomo, it's like it's not my favorite. Um, I have to give it props for showing that that sound is kind of eternal. Yeah. You know, it's like 1988. You've got like you know hip-hop starting you've got metal you've got hair metal and then all of a sudden you have this old cornball beach boy song that is just like what they were doing in 1962 and 63 and with very little difference other than maybe some 80s you know instrumentation like synthesizers and it still stands the test of time like people still want to hear that you're that's what you're underestimating the power of john stamos i would say right oh yeah yeah what okay dude this is something I don't, what's up with John Stamos and the Beach Boys? Why is John Stamos always want to play fucking drums with? Why is he always there with, with the so-called Beach Boys? Even though the Beach Boys now are essentially Bruce Johnston, who was the guy who took over for Brian Wilson on touring and Mike Love. Yeah. They're all the other guys, Al Jardine and, and Brian Wilson want nothing to do with them. They're, they're fighting. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the Beach Boys. This is a huge tangent I'm going to go on, but they are kind of the quintessential American family. They hate each yeah. other, you know, there's squabbles <laughs> and they're just doing it in public. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like this, this weird family 
you know, shit with their political leanings being different. And, and, you know, uh, Mike Love, uh, you know, we saw it heard at the beginning, you know, just being an absolute ass at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, you know, an embarrassment and and then, you know, Brian saying he hates him. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just interesting how they that's drama is all played out for us. And it's kind of such an American family kind of thing. I don't know what I'm saying with that, but but let's get to the John. St- what is the fucking John Stamos thing? How did that happen? What is that? Well, John you know Stamos about fancies that? himself. So first of all, everybody probably knows John Stamos from Full House, but he was actually a soap opera actor before that on General That's Hospital. Right. Which, And by the way, I met him. I, I oh, was, wow. as a kid, this is a whole other story for a different time, visited the General Hospital set um, and met him and Demi Moore on the set. They, wow. She was on that at, this, at that time, very young. She was like 19, I think. Um, wow. uh, yep. And he was there. He was a soap opera actor. He's a drummer of sorts, you know, probably decent drummer, you know, capable drummer. And I think that he just liked playing with the Beach Boys. He played with them, I think, throughout that time in the 80s and then beyond. And he is, you know, Mike Love's buddy now. And whenever there's a Beach Boys related thing, he's the drummer. He's toured with them. He's played on like a lot of their televised show uh, shows that they've had. There was like a Live show, I almost played a clip from it and I just couldn't take it from uh, three or four years ago in a Washington, D.C. concert where, um, who's that goof from like, uh, what's that band? Uh, Sugar, Sugar Ray. Ray. Oh my God. Sugar Ray. Yeah, I saw that that too. That was like in 2017. 2017, like yeah. Trump love fest. Yeah, and, there's some there's some know. horrible thing. And, yeah. and that, that Sugar Ray guy with like the scary, you know, plastic surgery uh, thing oh, going yeah. on and, and the eyes and the whole kind of right. weirdness. And, and, uh, so the, there was a show there and John Stamos is there. He, he's been playing with them forever. I think he just, he's, you know, you said he's sort of a honorary beach boy at this point. Um, I don't know anything about him personally or his political stuff at all, but just being associated with Mike Love, those sort of things does not augur well for his, uh, you know, general levels of intelligence in my opinion, but Different story, different time. Um, look, a lot of the other Beach Boys over the years have done solo albums, have varying success. If you you mentioned the Dennis Wilson one, had some interesting stuff on it. Mike Love had one at some point that was a minor hit. Um, you know, who knows why? Uh, it wasn't great. I listened to parts of it. Al Jardine has right. had some that are, Frank, sorry, Al, but just really not listenable in any way. Um, so, you know, look, they, they, uh, they've been around forever. They've been mining these same, uh, waters as it were for, for now, you know, six decades, which is pretty incredible. And they're still selling out shows at state fairs around, you know, with, uh, who's left of, you know, various, uh, incarnations of foreigner and sticks and all the right. <laughs> other fucking things. So right. they're still doing it and, uh, they don't sound great. Um, they're still cruising after all still these cruising. Years. Yep. Talking, writing songs about keeping your, you know, why social distancing is bunk and it's anti-American to wash your hands. Fuck, they should. Where's, where's, where's fucking my little Tesla? Why aren't they writing yeah. that? You know, fucking write, write about the new cars, dude. <laughs> write about, write about the, my Waymo, yeah. you know, of a self-driving car. Yeah. My, you know, like what the fuck, you know, come on. He, I don't. I just don't think Mike Mike Love has much talent to write anything. No. I mean, we heard that 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 COVID song. It's like probably one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, um, definitely. Just melodically terrible. I mean, he really 
it's like Brian, he really needs Brian, even though I'm not, I don't think much of a lot of what Brian Wilson has done either. I don't mind the first solo album. I think that has its moments. And then those voices just trashed. Yep. Um, but I think the later stuff, you know, orange crate art and this shit is just, garbage. Yeah, I agree. You know, these other albums. I agree. Uh, look, I, I think the thing with Mike Love too, is if you look at there's clips of him performing recently and it's not really him. It, it's background singers, you know, who are oh, professional yeah. make, who are doing all the harmonies and they have his mic turned way down. I actually saw one clip. It's just too embarrassing to play. It's just like him is clearly auto-tuned, you know, trying to, yeah. you know, and it's just like, People are just there to see him. He's still going. He's like 80, you know, early 80s. And he, as yeah. you mentioned, unfortunately, maybe, uh, sorry, but. He might be the last uh, one left. I'm pulling for Al Jardine. I really just don't think Brian has the health to, to Brian, do it. But we'll see. We'll you never, never know. know how these things go. So so let's talk a little bit about our personal histories um, with this band. And yeah, so, so why don't you take it away here, Slip? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, we should do a little more back and forth than usual in this, because usually we all kind of do our own one thing and there's a little bit of interaction. But I think with this one, let's kind of, uh, you know, maybe maybe we'll trade off a little bit okay. more here like we've been doing. So obviously my earliest introduction to the Beach Boys was probably a 45 or two. I don't remember. I remember when I was really little, um, you know, like four or five years old, I didn't have records like 33 and a third RPM records. I had 45s and I had Elvis, Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel and um, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Those are the 45s I had. For some reason, that was what I wanted to hear. And I have a feeling it was due to Endless Summer. So I was five years old when Endless Summer came out. Um, and it was just the Beach Boys were all over the place suddenly. You know, they were um, uh, they were back. And it was all due to a, a pretty much American graffiti, but also the Beatles were experiencing a similar kind of renaissance. I mean, the Beatles had never really gone away. They'd only been broken up for a few years, but their music was coming back because there, there was a lot of re-releases. You know, there was the Red Album and the Blue Album, which were the compilations that had come out in the early 70s and done such huge business. Yep. And there was like, they were releasing live stuff, you know, like Live at Hollywood Bowl, that would be later 70s, but they were releasing a lot of the, the rock and roll music compilation. Um, and there was a lot of nostalgia during the time, right? So I remember hearing the songs and like, and similar to Elvis and the Beatles, I didn't realize this stuff was old. You know, I didn't realize the Beatles, the Beach Boys was, you know, that I was listening to, you know, Catch a Wave or whatever. I didn't realize that was from, you know, 13 years ago. To me, it was just another song, you know, so I really liked it. Um, my dad, so I remember hearing it really early on, but then later my stepmom, and my dad got married in 77 and she came with this thing of eight tracks. Her dowry, it like, as it were. I was, yeah. She, she basically had all her eight, she had an eight track player in her Toyota Celica <laughs> and she had this great collection of eight tracks. I mean, she had like rumors. She had heart, uh, dreamboat Annie. Yeah, nice. Uh, she had steely Dan. She had cat Stevens greatest hits. I mean, these are like some of my favorite things to this day. Awesome. Um, it was such a huge impact, but she had endless summer. Because she was very nostalgic for that kind of era, even though she was 13 years younger than my dad. I used to look at her yearbooks and there were guys who looked like 40 in there because they had these huge beards <laughs> and long hair because she graduated in 74. So it was like I was like and it was like most popular band, Led Zeppelin, yeah. you know, most popular song, Deep Purple. And I'm like, man, I like 
it's like she didn't like any of that shit. You know, she liked Loggins and Messina and kind of mellower yeah. stuff and the Eagles and, you know, Steely Dan. She didn't really like the heavy rock, but I was, you know, later, I remember in the 80s just looking at her yearbook going, man, it would have been so cool to be in 1974 with, you know, I'd be able to go see Led Zeppelin live and all this shit. But she was never into that. She was much more into older stuff. You know, she even went to see Elvis in Vegas with her mother. Wow. You know, yeah. like around this time. Yeah. He, he, he was, when he was fat Elvis. Yeah. I, I mean, he, Elvis was a huge, literally and figuratively draw in Vegas at that time, yeah. right? Yeah. So people were still wanting to hear this shit, right? So I remember listening to Endless Summer and just loving it. You know, even, even as I started getting into harder stuff, I really, I always loved the Beach Boys. Yep. I never stopped really liking them. I stopped kind of caring about them for a while. I also remember when 15 Big Ones came out, which was the album that was sort of supposed to be this big comeback for Brian. You know, he had not been doing anything. He'd been laying famously just laying in bed all the time. And he kind of got back behind the console and produced this album of covers called 15 Big Ones, which is basically crap. You know, it's not good. But they had a hit with rock and roll music. And I remember hearing that all over the radio. Yeah. Um, it was their cover of Chuck Berry's rock and roll music. Um and it was a, yeah, I think it made the top 10 even. It was a pretty big hit. Um, I also remember, we'll probably talk about this more. I remember Sunkissed. Um, I have a whole rant about but, that that um, I'm going to go off on. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm going to stop there and let you take over. And then I'll go back to my, because I, I, this is basically the kind of the end of my first kind of wave with the Beach Boys. And then, you know, obviously in high school and in college, there's more. But why don't you kind of talk about your early days? Yeah. And uh, that background. The, the earliest... I don't distinctly remember listening to a Beach Boys album or hearing one particular, you know, eight track or I remember vaguely the Beach Boys Endless Summer cover being around. My parents definitely did not have it. But growing up in Southern California at the time, they were just everywhere. You couldn't turn on the radio at that time um, without hearing a Beach Boys song. They were just ubiquitous. They were just part of the, the landscape. Um, yeah. at that time and with, with other bands, you know, the Carpenters and, you know, soft rock stuff that was pretty big. Yeah. And I just remember hearing them and they were just part of the woodwork and they were part of the beach culture, even in the seventies, even as the seventies started having more of these darker elements that we were talking about of the surf culture, they were, they were just part of it. They were just there. I remember hearing all these songs. I loved all these songs. I don't recall seeing them, you know, I never saw them live, but I don't recall seeing them on TV or anything, but they were just part of the, I can't separate the two things in my mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I need to mention this too. I didn't mention that, but I've always loved the beach. You know, I grew up, my dad lived across the street from the beach. I was kind of an indoor kid when I was a teenager. I was like just watching MTV and listening to records. I totally ignored the beach for years. But when I was really young in the 70s, we used to go to the beach all the time in Orange County, like Corona Del Mar, Newport Beach. And I always associated the Beach Boys with that beach feeling, you know, of going to the beach. I remember the best feeling is you go to the beach, you, you get a little sunburn, you swim in the water all day, maybe, you know, um, get on a boogie board or whatever. And then you come home exhausted and have the best sleep of your life. And I just associated that kind of glow. And I still do with the Beach Boys. It still gives me that music is so tied in with that Southern California beach experience for me. It was that way, even in my early years. And that's the, I think that's stayed with me ever since. That was certainly the case with me too. I grew up further from the, the beach than you did, but I went to the ocean a lot. 
Um, what beach did you Santa guys Monica go to? Beach, oh, yeah, okay. um, yeah, right near where and uh, right near where the Three's Company montage was filmed. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly where um, I went all the time. I have so many memories of Santa Monica Pier, and it used to be like kind of an amusement park down there. Maybe it is. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. I mean, basically, if you look at the some of the opening montage stuff of Three's Company, that that's where I spent a lot of time. And summer camp, I used to be at the beach probably three or four times a week. I I was basically warehoused as a as a kid um, at yeah. day camp during the summers, um, and it was a kind of a cut rate one. So it was more definitely more Camp North Star than Camp Mohawk. Uh, get that reference. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I spent all day at the beach um, boogie boarding, and you know you saw kids that had those really nice kind of orange, smooth foam boogie boards with the leashes. We had the piece of shit, you know, gouged out, a toxic waste, plastic, malformed boogie boards, you know, at the camp that I was at. It's probably, you know, eating away your skin while you're using it. We, it was really kind of a a, a cheap way to, uh, you know, keep kids amused, right? At that time. And it it was was actually good, right? Yeah, totally. you know, we, I just have these memories of that culture and the time where they would throw peanut butter jelly sandwiches at us for lunch. There was like, the, you know, the big coolers of orange, watered down orange drink, not juice, not soda, yep. but like kind of like that powdered orange drink, the same kind of coolers you'd see the road uh, cleaning prison gangs uh, side uh, prison gangs have uh, today. It was like, Completely unsupervised, as was most of the childhood of the 70s. There was like, I can't ever remember lifeguards being around, although there were lifeguard like shacks on the beach in Santa Monica. They were rarely staffed. And when they were, it was, you know, they weren't really paying attention. Um, I recall the kind of freedom, though, and, and maybe this is this is a negligent freedom, to be honest. But part of what you were saying about the the associations in your mind, I just remember being out in the water. And at the time, if you were a strong swimmer, and this is, I'm talking, I was, this is probably late seventies. So I was eight, nine right. years old, something like that. If you were a strong swimmer and, and you could kind of pass muster with one of the, you know, half stone counselors, you could go out in the water as far as you want. They didn't pay much attention to what you were doing. I was one of those strong swimmers. I could swim before I could walk almost literally. Um, and still, I drowned, m- almost drowned multiple times. Um, just got getting wiped out, uh, riptides. Wow. Yeah, just. I probably did too. Yeah. I probably did too. I just, um, you know, you were talking about that feeling that some of these songs evoke. And one of the, the things that I still have this very vivid memory of is like being tossed around by a wave, kind of wiping out. And not, and it's almost like a surreal half panic, half relaxation mode where you have to um, just kind of calm yourself, relax, wait a few seconds. It seems like an eternity as you're being tossed around, pulled down through the waves. And, you know, if you can relax and just let it happen, as it were, you'll the wave will spit you out. You'll be able to get to the surface. You can get air. But I just remember as a little kid that happening so many times, I can't even, re- you know, count. And realizing, yeah. realizing that if you weren't a strong swimmer or you were one to panic, you could drown so easily. Oh, yeah. The ocean is not to be trifled with. Yeah. Yeah. And rip currents, too. I remember in high school, uh, or actually this was in college, 
after college, uh, I lived in Long Beach with a couple of guys uh, before I lived in Japan. And we went out, um, you know, we'd just go out at night. Uh, after my friend Brad got off of work, I was looking for a job. It was like 1991 recession, you know, and, and we went out there and we'd go swimming in the beach cause it was summer and it was still warm out and it was just the best to swim during the sunset. And I remember we got pulled out by a rip current and I swam in high school, you know, I was on the swim team. I was a pretty strong swimmer yeah. and I got pulled out by this rip current and there were a bunch of us out in the water and there, there were lifeguards on this little tiny little boat they had, and they were going around and picking us out of the water. Because the riptide was that yeah. bad. And I'm a I'm a good swimmer, but yeah, I've I've now have new respect after that for the ocean because we easily could have easily it was we weren't getting in. We were exhausted, you know. So um yeah, that's how dangerous it can be for sure. Well, and I also remember, by the way, at the time I a couple other stories that I think sort of set the, the stage a little bit here. Remember, this is the time of Jaws, the movie Jaws. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I remember. This is kind of a funny story. There, there, uh, you know, kids would have these fake dorsal fins that look like sharks. Oh yeah, yeah. and I, like I think in Jaws two or Jaws one, there's a scene with a kid wearing a fake fin that scares everybody on the beach. It's one of the Jaws movies. I don't think it might not be the first one. I, I remember yeah. kids having those. That was like a joke. It was a right? joke. And yeah. The funny thing was, is the dorsal fin was like maybe a tenth the size of a real one, but. There yeah. was, you know, kids had these dorsal fins. They'd swim around and try to scare people. I remember a couple of kids had like uh, limbs, like fake plastic limbs that had like blood on the end right. that would float around in the water, you know, to kind of freak people out. And there was, uh, I remember at this camp, this day camp I was warehoused at, there was uh, a, a kid, a smaller kid. This is maybe like five or six years old. Right. A little kid. I was like six or seven or eight or nine or so, a little bit older. But this little kid, um, he pooed himself. <laughs> Oh, wow. And the counselors were trying to get him to go into the water to clean himself off, right? Because he didn't really have a change of clothes or anything. And they were trying to get him yeah. to go out, like, you know, waist deep into the water. And there were kids out there swimming around with the fake dorsal uh, fin. And this little kid wouldn't go in the water because he was scared. He thought it was a shark. I guess he had seen Jaws. And the counselor was yeah. like, trying to pull him into the water and he was like throwing a fit. So he had to oh, wow. he had to sit on the bus on the way home and in, back into the into the valley in his uh, pooey shorts, which <laughs> <laughs> dude, yeah, shit that wouldn't fly today was the '70s were just like anarchy as a kid, you know, compared to today. I, it's, Everything's so controlled. It's crazy, and and like here here's another kind of story that is, is in that vein, which is um, I think I was maybe a little older, so nine or ten late seventies at the beach. I was out, you know, quite a bit away from the shore, you know, playing around in the waves and the water still could stand. So it wasn't like I wasn't a mile out, but it was, it was pretty far out. There was another kid who was part of the could really swim well crew, you know, one of my buddies, um, right. and so with some older kids and somebody body surfed into this kid and oh, wow. knocked him out, basically, I think, or, or stunned him so much that he almost drowned just because he was not conscious or whatever it is. And they had to kind of rescue him and he had water in his lungs and they got it out and he was OK eventually. But the counselors being the you know gems of humanity that they were, and really poor training and not experience, basically said, oh, you, you can't swim. You almost drowned. You're banned. You can't yeah. go out past like the 10 foot mark. 
And this kid who was like a pretty strong swimmer and like one of the, you know, crew who was out there every day with a boogie board could not go out in the ocean anymore. And I just remember like this haunts me still. He used to stand there at the shoreline and just stare at us with, you know, ankle deep in the water with this longing, sad look in his eyes, just completely humiliated and emasculated. And I got to imagine, Slip, that between the kid sitting in his own poo and this kid who was banned from the water, the the psychological scars of this have no doubt resulted in today some dead hookers. Like, like, yeah, probably, probably happened. I mean, this, you know, those sort of, you know, cultural, um, you know, impact, uh, things to, to young children. Right. Sure. It was crazy. It was scary actually older and older kids were so scary. Like those counselors were like, not really counselors. They were just like older bullies kind of bullies at the time for for sure. Who just probably liked being in a position of power over little kids, you know, the, the counselors at this camp, like half of them were stoned. Um, yeah. you could tell, right. They didn't give a shit. And, and look, the seventies childhood, you mentioned this was very little supervision. I know if you're younger and you're listening to this, you're listening to these stories and you're going, what the hell were these abused children? This is how people grew up there. The yeah. whole idea of latchkey kids, that was the 1970s. Yeah. I was a latchkey kid. I was kid. too, basically, yeah. um, complete benign, uh, negligence in my parents case so at least the benign part but as opposed to brian yeah right? totally totally um yeah. but whatever the opposite of helicopter parents are that's what we had in the 70s or no helmets right. the idea of wearing a helmet when you were skateboarding or riding your bike like there were no helmets it's kind of crazy yeah totally there are even helmets for surfing now because there's so many injuries yeah. like uh my stepmom was just telling me about a friend of hers whose son she has two kids one of them's older one of them was 14 and they were going surfing in um, Del Mar, which is a beach in Southern, in lower Orange County, I believe. Um, and um, might be in San it's Diego. It's in San Diego, North San Diego. Yeah. Okay. It's in San Diego. So they were in Del Mar and one of the kids got hit in the head by his surfboard. So his surfboard flew off. He wiped out. He got hit in the back of the head, killed him. Wow. Dead. Yep. That's cr- Basically he, he got a, a broken neck, I think, or something. So it's like now they have helmets for because we were watching TV when I was in Thanksgiving at, at my dad's this last week. And, you know, there was a guy advertising these helmets, you know, who had been injured himself. Um, so now they have helmets for surfing, but they didn't then they probably didn't even have leashes yet on the boards. And leash is a huge safety thing. Right. Because if you don't have a leash, your board can go off and hit somebody yep. else. Now they even have foam boards similar to the boogie board material. I use a foamy most of the time. I use a cheap Costco board. Um, I love it. It's really easy to paddle out on and it's just safer. I don't care if I'm, you know, I'm never going to be fucking good at surfing. You know, it's just, I, because I'm a chicken, you know, probably when I was a kid, me and my friend Dale did try surfing. Once we found an old surfboard and we tried using it, didn't even have a leash. And I just, yeah, it was scary as hell. We'd go out there and just flail around and probably not even be able to, you know, we couldn't really paddle. We couldn't really do anything. We'd ride it on our belly. That's the most we could do because surfing's hard. It is hard. You yeah. know, so basically now that I can surf, though, when I go out there, I'm fucking scared every time, you know, because that's just the way things are now. And, and when you get older, you get scared. But when you're young, you know, especially in the 70s, you just felt invincible. You, know, you could do all this crazy shit. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's dangerous as hell. So, yeah, even not even helmets for skateboarding or bicycling. There's also helmets for surfing now. 
And there should be. There should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's especially these guys with these pointy boards, like the little pointy boards. I'll never be good enough to ride. You know, I ride a longboard usually. Um, those are dangerous. Those will put people's eyes out. You know, really, they should be illegal in my in my fifty year old conservative mind. But as a kid, of course, I would never have thought that. That's right. Well, why would you? You know, we we were completely yeah. unsupervised. I just remember even as like a five or six year old, just riding my bike around Greater Los Angeles with. As long as you were basically back by dinner with all your limbs, yeah, no, no problem. Um, one other. So, were you just were you listening to the band at all, really, or I, did you did you just hear it because it was a? Rant? I heard it. I, or, I didn't um, actively listen to them at that point. I was listening to other music when it would come on the radio. I'd listen to the you know the usual AM radio stations that were popular, KFJ, you, yeah. you know all those things. They yeah. were on a lot, and I was like, oh, I like this. This is good. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was into them. I liked it, but I didn't actively listen to them much until, uh, later in high school. And then, um, when we, uh, you know, would start to listen to them more in, in college. But, um, before we, we talk about that later listening a little bit, I do just want to tell one other story about the beach that has left an indelible mark, which is a, a good mark actually is. When um, we were, I think, again, probably 10, 11 years old at the beach in the water, there were, you know, it was a public beach. Will Rogers State Beach was right there in Santa Monica. It was popular um, in the summertime, as you might imagine, for all of Southern California. We were in the water, me and my friends, and out on the beach were some teenage girls, uh, probably 15 or 16, sunbathing and, you know, goofing around and stuff like that. And of course, you know, my friends and I were very interested in what they were doing. And we kept, you know, every time we would surf in uh, to the shore, we'd kind of get out of the water and kind of check out to see what they were doing. Right. And these girls were noticing these little kids. They probably like, you know, little brothers kind of checking them out and looking at them and stuff like that. And they were lying around with like their tops, you know, off, uh, you know, with their, you know. Right. So, so they could so suntan, they could suntan and stuff back. like right. that. Yeah. And they. Without getting the tan without line. Without getting the tan line. And, and and they were sort of trying to tease us a little bit, you know, about that. And one of the girls decided that she's going to tease us a little more. And, you know, we were kind of ogling them from the water, kind of showed us her boobs a little bit, which was... Oh, shit. Which was like... Dude, we, I should have fucking gone to the LA yeah. beaches in Orange County. I never saw shit like that. I mean, obviously, I was, you know, there were girls and all that, yeah. but... Man, L.A. sounds out of well, control. Well, it was one time. Because like we, we would go up to Santa Monica every once in a while, but we wouldn't go to go to the beach. It was more like maybe we'd go to the boardwalk or we'd drive around L.A. or my dad was driving us around if we were going to like the Natural History Museum and stuff in downtown. Uh, but but yeah, we never had that in Orange County, man. I should have. I, I wish I would have gone to the L.A. beaches. That well, it was crazy. one time. But whenever I hear that song, oh, Girls yeah. on the Beach, that's what I'm thinking. Of. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so to bring it back to the totally. back to the Beach Boys. But I, I'll let you talk a little bit about your later experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So later, um, you know, my next kind of big exposure to the Beach Boys uh, was in high school. So we I was on the swim team and water polo team and we would go to meets, you know, and we would get on a school bus and they would drive us to the meets. And one of the other friends I had there was this guy, Frank Kim, and he um, was super into the Beach Boys. And we would listen to our Walkmans. I had this little tiny Walkman, you know, and I'd play like my cheap trick or whatever I was fucking listening to, you know, probably then it might have been the Smiths or something. But that was probably later. You know, I probably maybe the replacements or prints, you know, that's the kind of shit I listened to. But um, but the uh, he had a tape of like a, a compilation 
And I remember that was the first time I heard the song Do It Again, which is kind of the first time the Beach Boys looked back at their early stuff. So Do It Again came out, I think, in 68 or 69. And it was maybe even 70. I don't know. But it was like a very early Beach Boys sounding record that kind of went back to their old sound from the kind of experimental stuff they were doing on Pet Sounds and, and on Smile. And it's, you know, it's a great song. It's catchy. It's 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 definitely of that early period. And it's even about going back the nostalgia. And I just remember hearing that and going, wow, OK. And, I, and it kind of brought me back to the Beach Boys a little bit, too. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, I have a friend uh, named Brad Haig, who I went to high school with, who is the hugest Brian Wilson. You know, he's a huge Brian Wilson and McCartney fan. It's the reason he plays bass. Um, and he was already into Brian Wilson. I don't think we talked about pet sounds or anything, but I know he was really into the Beach Boys. Um, you know, I talk, I would talk with him about that much later once, you know, we'll talk about pet sounds a little bit, how we got into that. And then, of course, um, you know, I read a lot of rock history books and stuff. And I remember being kind of mystified by Smile because Smile was one of these things. And my opinion of Smile now is kind of what it was then, which is that it wouldn't have been this huge transformation, I think, if it came out at the time. I don't think people would have recognized. I think it was too weird. And I think it was too weird for the Beach Boys to be accepted doing something like that. I think the Beatles easily slid into Sgt. Pepper and the more experimental revolvers, arguably even more experimental than Sgt. Pepper. They were already doing psychedelic stuff and they easily kind of were accepted to do that. But the Beach Boys, I don't think the rock elite that was forming at the time would have ever accepted anything from them. Um, that's different than England, obviously, because England, the Beach Boys never wavered in popularity and Pet Sounds was massive there, but it failed here. Right. So I remember reading about that and kind of thinking about Smile. But, you know, obviously that's for the next phase. Um, I also remember Mike Love coming out in support of the PMRC, which pissed me off. You know, I thought, fuck these guys. You know, and I didn't know what Brian was doing. Brian was off in Eugene Landy uh, yep. land. Um, but but I remember uh, in high school, thinking about Mike Love. And then, of course, the next phase of Beach Boys appreciation was huge, and that's kind of gone on to this day, which I'll let you kick off, because it was you who introduced me to Pet Sounds for the first. I'd never heard it, other than Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only... You know, I'd heard the songs, but I'd never heard the album until you got the CD reissue in the early 90s. Yeah, so... I, or late 80s, maybe. I don't remember when it was. Yeah, I got it in the early 80s. I... I, in high school, kind of got back into them a, a bit. Oh, okay. Um, I was sort of like, you know, you a little bit in the sense, maybe not to the same degree, you know, the little junior mu music critic and reading about rock yeah. history and things like that. And I wasn't really familiar with Pet Sounds that much other than that, you know, the Wouldn't It Be Nice and the God Only Knows and, and some of the hits off of, the, of that. Right. Sloop John Sloop B. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sloop John B. Yeah. Not the greatest song on the album, but you know that was the single. Yeah. That was a, I think I think that was a single. That was a single, and that was a song I I definitely knew. I was into Endless Summer. I definitely had that tape, the the uh, cassette tape of that. I listened to it a lot. I was into that. Weirdly, at the same time that I was in a lot, into a lot of metal and stuff like that, which was still to this day something. Um, we should also mention real quick that the weirdest thing about Good Endless Summer is the fact that Good Vibrations is on it. Because that's, a, I mean, the reason it's on it is because it was a, a number one smash, right? right? And, it, and it, it does kind of combine what they were doing in Pet Sounds with the early stuff. In a way, I think they could have done more on Smile because 
it really stands out as a catchy pop hit, yet it's so sophisticated with all these complex movements and you know the I, instrumentation is so complex. I right. Love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair. Yeah, it's like Bach or it's something, that background. Marvelous. It's it's a, it's a masterpiece, right? One of the greatest songs of all time. But it's weird that as a kid listening to Endless Summer, this is something I forgot to mention. I had no idea there was a difference between that and the early stuff. To me, it was all one contiguous thing. And I had no idea Good Vibrations was in 66, you know, years, years after most of the other stuff was recorded. And so, you know, it's weird to me that Wouldn't, Wouldn't It Be Nice wasn't on there. You know, I don't know if it was a big hit or not, but to me, it's a, it's as commercial as anything right. they ever did, you know? Um, but that's, I just wanted to mention that I'll let you continue on, on what you were saying, because again, it was only after I met, you know, after I hung out with you in college and I distinctly remember a reissue coming out in early nineties that had all these liner notes and you had yes. that and you, and you're the one who's like, you need to listen to this. This is incredible. Yeah, anyway, go on, because it was. You know, yeah, I, I had a version of it in high school. Um, I Late in high school, I got a CD player, started buying CDs. Right. And in college, like right before, you know, college, I might have gotten this reissue CD of, of Pet Sounds that had all these extra tracks on it. It had like all these weird like vocal cuts, where it was just them doing like weird harmony things that weren't on any of the, the official albums. And... Right, and it had like "Hang On to Your Ego," yeah. right, which was the alternate version of "I Know There's an Answer," which was the official song on the album. It was the original was "Hang On to Your Ego," and lyrically, that's another Tony Asher collaboration. They thought it was too weird, yeah. right? The, especially Mike Love was like, "What is this shit?" You know. Um, so yeah, I remember it having that. So you may have had that may have come out earlier, and you may have had it, but I remember not until our senior year did we actually talk about it that much. Yeah, your um, senior year, but so yes, <laughs> you might have had. Yeah, my senior yeah. year, your junior, what, yeah, junior yeah. or sophomore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I forget that all the time, but we feel like we're the same age. But I just not. look it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I remember that. So if you had an earlier version of it, you didn't play it for me. I had it on tape, um, and in college, and I, I only had the CDs. So yeah. Okay. So the CD would have been that reissue because that is when the Brian Wilson appreciation in the United States began. Anybody who says they were super into pet sounds in the 60s is fucking bullshit in America. No one cared about it. Um, probably it, it was minorly critically you know, looked at, but mostly it was not looked at very favorably in the US at all. Um, it was kind of dismissed. In the UK, it was looked upon as the masterpiece that it is. Yeah. Um, and that was largely due to Derek Taylor who um, was the publicist for the original the Beatles. And he came out with all this stuff, Brian is a genius. But the US didn't realize Brian was a genius until these guys like Dominic Priori and David Leaf and these, these kind of Beach Boy cult, cult figures, uh, you know, put out information about Smile and, and Pet Sounds. And, and there were a lot of articles of Brian is a genius in the 60s, but they were mostly a British publication. So it was not really thought of but that reissue with the extensive liner notes and all the outtakes was i think what led to i just wasn't made for these times and the kind of brian wilson renaissance right? which we bought into was, like a thousand percent yeah. right I, I we went through a period because it's true yeah, yeah. you know people were wrong americans were wrong yeah. it's, it was, was an absolute rock masterpiece one of the greatest albums of all time um i'll talk more about why i like the early stuff now more and i listen to it more 
but I don't think it's better. I just think it's what I'm more into. I think Pet Sounds is pretty much flawless and now recognized in its rightful place as one of the greatest albums ever made. But go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Look, we we kind of got into it. There was a period of time, I think, where we, yeah. we, as we both tend to do, get obsessive about it. And then we're just sort of waxing about, well, what Smile could have been. There are all those reissues of Smiles to, uh, that happened in recent times weren't out then. There was a version of Smile or Smiley Smile that was a bunch of garbage. Yeah, there were bootlegs passed around. As people say, it was the greatest bootleg of all time, and it's kind of the greatest lost album. Yeah, so we were really into that um, mythology. We were very much right. into that. We're getting into all the things that are Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds. We'll do Pet Sounds in its own right as a separate time because it deserves that. Yeah, we shouldn't go into too much detail on Pet Sounds, but I think it's important to note it's our, in our history, it's a major thing. And it's kind of what brought back the Beach Boys for me big time. And it's never really stopped. Yeah, since I, agreed. And it's because of you. You you, you had it. You said, this is great. And I listened to it and I'm like, yeah, this is, I never knew about this, you know? And then we, you got, I think you got some kind of book or we got it from the library that was like almost a pamphlet that Dominic Priori wrote that was a collection of articles. This was our senior yeah. year. I don't remember how we got this thing. It was almost like a zine. Yeah. It was like really cheap Xerox paper, but it was all these articles he'd put together. Um, interestingly enough, by the way, that guy, Dominic Priori, he's a Beach Boys kind of amateur scholar. He actually ended up working at the zoo when my cousin worked with him. <laughs> so he got to know yeah. him and was like working as a coworker with him in the 90s. It's so weird that this guy was really like one of the preeminent Beach Boys experts is just like working in a zoo because that it just, you know, goes to show you it's hard to become a, make a living doing something like that. It's even worse yeah. now. Um, but yeah, that was kind of interesting. Beach Boys, uh, elephant poo by day, Beach Boys by night. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Endless Summer here uh, and the, the album. So why don't you kick us off at telling us when it came out? why it came out. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about my history to start okay. it off because after Pet Sounds, obviously, you know, I got into Smile. We got the Good Vibrations box set, which had the first complete Smile stuff. It had a lot of the early stuff. Uh, one thing Endless Summer has that that doesn't have, though, that I think puts it over the top is for some crazy reason, my favorite Beach Boys song of all time is not on the Good Vibrations box set, which is Let Him Run Wild. Yeah. So that is my favorite, probably my favorite Beach Boys song ever. Um, even as a kid, I loved it, and it's on Endless Summer. But at any rate, when I yeah, you walk with him, as good as anything on Pet Sounds, in my opinion. My it could be on that ring. It could fit right in that I, I don't disagree about this being the greatest. Yeah. It is. It's up there, right? Yeah, Brian at the top of his vocal powers too, like his amazing fucking falsetto. It's so great, and the and just the song. I love the work. That's all Wrecking Crew doing that, and it sounds like Pet Sounds to me. It's it's part of the evolution toward. It Pet could sounds. be on Pet and Sounds. When I say my, it it, it yeah. could, and when I say it's my favorite song, I go I shade all the time. You know, obviously God only knows these songs are masterpieces. It's hard to. It's hard to, you know, wouldn't it be nice? It's actually my wife's favorite song. She actually hates the Beach Boys, except for Pet Sounds. She said they made one good album. I'm like, that's not that's true. That's not true. You know? <laughs> uh, but, but you know, whatever. That's her her thing. She doesn't like the whole surfing, uh, you know, culture thing in the cars. And she doesn't get into that. But anyway, 
endless summer. So I started surfing about, you know, I tried surfing in the early 2000s, but I was 80 pounds heavier than I am now. And I couldn't push myself up. I was drastically out of shape. I couldn't get up the next day when I took my first surfing lesson. So I couldn't go to the second class. I had to wait a week. But uh, years later, when I got more in shape in 2012 or 2013, I took the lessons again and I could do it. Um, and I've been surfing ever since off and on. And when I started surfing again, I really went back to Endless Summer because I I kept thinking about how those songs made me feel as a kid. And now, and we'll probably play some more clips of this stuff, but um, when I hear something like Catch a Wave, to me, that captures everything about surfing. It's, yeah. Catch a Wave. Yeah. And I, I admit, I love they'll eat their words with a fork and spoon. Like, I, I love that. But um, that's Mike Love. But yeah, it's like, it it kind of nails it. And the thing is, is it, um, you know, even the, the, the symbol, the kind of symbol flourishes and the harp captures like the kind of glistening blue and white foam, you know, to me, yeah. it's like, it just captures the feeling. And when you ca- do catch a wave and you stand up on the board for the first time, it's like, you're sitting on top of the world or you're standing on top of whatever yeah. he says. That is completely how it feels. Like to me, that's why they exported this feeling to the world and why the instrumental stuff, even though the instrumental stuff is kind of that kind of guitar, that Dick Dale guitar really does kind of capture some of the feeling too. It's to me, they just nailed it. And that's why, that's what got me back into them as, um, you know, even though I was still into pet sounds and smile all these years, I never have not been into them. Um, it, to me, this really is what I go to now. Uh, when I listen to the beach boys, especially when I get into summer mode and the weather starts getting warm and I start thinking, you know, I've got to go surfing. I listen to this stuff all the time. And, um, yeah, so I just wanted to start off with that. But as far as Endless Summer, I guess we can transition into more of uh, the context of the album. So as I mentioned, you know, the Beach Boys in the early 70s, Brian's like not really part of the group. He's kind of doing some quirky stuff in the studio. They're mostly mining outtakes of Smile for a lot of the, the, the you know, the, the albums that they, uh, you know, they even made an album called Surf's Up after the song. Yep. And um they were kind of just mining those old tracks and the other beach boys were writing some songs too. Um, they had do it again, but they didn't really have much hits. They had a really oddball song called sail on sailor, which I think is a great song, but it doesn't sound like them no. at all. It, it has the, uh, I forget the band member's name, but they had two other band members join at this time. And that guy sing one of those guys sings the lead. So it's not even them singing. Um, and it's got water theme, you know, but it doesn't it's not really a Beach Boys song in the way that, you know, a shutdown is or something like that uh, or, or California Girl. So, you know, they they were they were doing this stuff and then they wanted to do a greatest hits album or Capital did. And they were originally going to call it like, you know, uh, right. You 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 say they were going to call it greatest hits volume four or something like that because they had out of their compilation. Yeah. Right. But then they they ended up doing. um uh they ended up doing um, uh, what should I call it? Endless yeah. Summer, which is right a rip off of the, uh, the the classic surfing documentary. Yeah, about trying to surf, find waves all over the world. That was like in the late sixties. Right. Yeah. right, and it's funny because I mentioned you know 
that I got into Endless Summer again and listening to Surfing USA, which is, you know, Surfing USA is just a ripoff of Chuck Berry's Sweet Little 16. Yeah. It's not even that original of a song. But the fact that they name check all these surfing locations that are still surfing locations yeah. kind of hit with me too. Cause I'm like, oh, if I go to San Diego, I can go to Swami's, yeah. right? Swami's is a beach in San Diego. There's actually a pizza port beer named after it too. Um, it's a very famous surfing spot. And they mentioned that. And they mentioned surfing spots throughout Hawaii and California. And since I'm into surfing now, I'm like, wow, okay, those are still really famous surfing spots to this day. Obviously, the ge geography isn't going to change, right. you know, but it's still cool that they that they did name check that stuff. It is. And, and this compilation really has a mix of all the themes that we've been talking about. There are songs right. about surfing. You have Surfing Safari, Surfer Girl, Catch a Wave, which we played before, Surfing USA. We have uh, songs about cars and car racing, uh, Little Deuce Coop, Shut Down. Uh, this one I'm going to play here. And she'll have fun, 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 till her daddy takes yeah, a deep away. Fun, 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 till her daddy takes a deep well, away. Well, the can't stand her because she walks, looks and drives like an ace. You walk like an ace now, you walk like an ace. Maybe a little proto-feminist uh, car racing uh, stuff there. Maybe, maybe. But you know what's funny about that, too, is I didn't mention this before, but we talked about the influence. I mean, what are the fucking Ramones but a punk rock Beach yep. Boys? That's, I mean, they're a little bit of girl group in there, too. Yeah. You know, but obviously they even covered Do You Want to Dance? Yeah. You know, and it's like they, that part of that nostalgia that was being, you know, really was kicked off by, uh, by Shauna Na was probably first. They even played Woodstock and Killed. You know, amongst all these psychedelic bands, these doo-wop kind of retro 50s band came on and people went ape shit and it started this whole movement they even end up having a tv show ironically the ramones would be on that um and you know obviously american graffiti was the real impetus because you have all summer long i think is the end credits of that you know is and when they're showing all what happened to this character and that and obviously the cars even though it was in modesto so there's no surfing there's tons american graffiti has got drag racing in it and it's got a, a, a varied 50 soundtrack, but the Beach Boys were featured so prominently on that, those songs started to get played. And that's when Endless Summer was released in that context. And it was such a huge album that the Beach Boys became this massive touring act. And actually, you mentioned not, not seeing any video of them. There's really funny video of Mike Love all Vegas out. In, you know, he's wearing sparkling kind of Vegasy clothes and he's strutting on the stage like Mick Jagger. It is so cringy. Um, I don't know if we could find that footage and, and watch it. It's, it's at some point, but it's hilarious. But yeah, it was a massive album. And Rolling Stone, who just ridiculed the Beach Boys, they Rolling Stone did not recognize Pet Sound's greatness. They did not appreciate what Brian was trying to do with Smile. They they criticized them as has-beens and, you know, you know, they named them actually Band of the Year for 1974 for just Endless Summer and the the fact that they became this stadium-level touring act, right. which they'd never really been, even in the early 60s. They, they'd been really popular, but they had not got the crowds like they did in 1974. And the, you know, the car drag racing thing, uh, one of the greatest Beach Boy songs ever is about that theme. Uh, I'll play a little bit of that. It's called Don't Worry Baby. Oh yeah, that's a tough one. Don't worry baby, everything will turn out all right. Great song, great harmonies. Um, again, that same 
And lyric, brilliant yeah. lyrics, right? Because it's a metaphor. That's right. It's a, it's, it's about cars, but it's not really about cars. It's about right. sex. Yeah. It's about like, you know, losing your virginity and all that. And they, and I think it's like little Susie, right? Still holds uh, up. The, yeah. the Everly Brothers, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's so brilliant the way they would, way they would kind of fold those in. It's almost like the way science fiction can talk about politics in a way and not be controversial because even though they're talking about stuff now, you know, it's hidden by being about the future. It's kind of the same thing where they're talking about this car thing, but it's really about something that's much more sensitive, right. you know? And, and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just genius. Absolute genius. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. And then we have a bunch of songs about on, on endless number about beachy stuff. Um, we have California girls. Uh, I'll play a little bit of that. And I think you wanted to, to talk about this song a little bit. Play the beginning because I think it's the, one of the greatest pieces of music ever created. Well, you have and hey david lee roth yeah man. you know <laughs> that's how that song just stands the test of time and i would argue that van halen beautiful girls is kind of a, a similar 100 agree in a way. yep 100 and and i think uh that beginning of that song is just like a classical piece of music that's incredible and i remember once you kind of got me back into the beach boys with pet sounds and i got the good vibrations uh disc i used to just rewind and listen to that over and over the intro because i just don't want it to end i mean i like the regular song but that beginning it just sends chills down my spine every time i hear it by the way the um, such an incredible piece of music agreed and the the vocal stylings uh of mike love that brian wilson was making fun of in the opening clips uh by having al jardine oh, yeah. hold his nose while he played that piano which is a video you should check out. We'll put it in the links. Oh yeah, I'll have to check that. Yeah. I'll have to check that um, out. Another song on about beachy stuff on this, uh, a great compilation that I want to play is again, one of my most favorite uh, Beach Boy song. It's called The Warmth of the Sun. Amazing harmonies, just beautiful, great song. That's another song that's about something else. Yeah. It's actually about the Kennedy assassination, yeah. but they're just singing about I Still Have the Warmth of the Sun. Obviously, they they release a more explicit dedication in A Young Man is Gone, which I think is on Spirit of America, uh, that's about Kennedy. But that's about their reaction to what had happened. Yep. It's their, it, yeah, I still have the warmth of the sun, but it's like, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, even though it's not, it's very subtle, it's that, that is what it's about, essentially. Um, and the, the harmonies, I mean, you listen to these songs, to me, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, was I mentioned Phil Spector, but to me, I listened to Phil Spector. For one thing, Phil Spector fucked up as many albums as he made good, right? Obviously, there's Let It Be, yeah. you know, his cornball shit on there. Um, you know, obviously... I think some of his best work is when he did minimal stuff, when he kind of kept his hands out of things like John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band album, which is so scaled down. Um, All Things Must Pass, you know, I think there's some production stuff on there that's iffy, even though I think it's a masterwork, uh, George Harrison's album. 
But I think Phil Spector gets a lot of credit for that stuff. But really, it's when he's more hands off that it's better. And I do think the Christmas album and all that stuff's great. But to me, that doesn't sound fresh. Like to me, I listen to something like Warmth of the Sun and the instrumentation is so simple. And it's really just about their voices more than anything else. It to me sounds timeless. Like a lot of these songs, even though they're about this culture we talked about, um, because of the way they're produced and because of the minimalist, some of the minimalist stuff and some of the the instrumentation, it just sounds, it doesn't sound dated. Like a lot of Phil Spector stuff to me sounds very echoey and, you know, it's it's kind of hollow sounding. You know, I, I, I still, Phil Spector's one of those things where, you know, maybe someday I'll get it and realize he's the greatest thing ever. I do understand his influence. To me, one of his greatest achievements was getting Brian influenced so he could create this yeah. stuff because he wouldn't have done it the same way without Phil Spector's influence. And I get his influence, but I just have never thought that stuff stands the test of time the way the Beach Boys does. And I think partly it's because of the emphasis, emphasis on the voices more than just the music and um, just the way he produced it. It sounds, it doesn't sound dated to me even though it's about such a particular time. Yeah, it, the the music is so great. The voices are so great that just that never goes out of style. I never get sick of it. Every time I listen to yeah, this- Yeah, me neither. You play Warmth of the Sun and I'm like, I, I just want to listen to all of yeah. them. You know, it's like I never get bored of these songs. They're so good. That's what's, a, they have such staying power. One thing I do want to talk about, we're talking about these beachy things. I played a little bit of this song, Good Vibrations, before. I'm going to replay the clip again. And I want to talk about Good Vibrations and I want to talk about something that bothers me so much still to this day. We referred to it earlier, but let me play the, the song first, uh, a little clip here. Right. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair That gives me chills, yeah, it's like man. Classical music, yeah. That that just the way the 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 and I love all the different movements in that song. I mean, it's so complicated. They took six months to do it, you know, just on one song. Yeah. But man, it was worth it. it. It you you see all the work that you hear, all the work that went into it, and yet it's effortless at the same time because it's so catchy. Every single movement in it is memorable. Um, I that's something that's so hard to pull off. I don't think anybody's done quite as sophisticated a song, pop song, as this ever. This was one you know? of my favorite songs ever when I was a kid. I loved it. I certainly didn't appreciate it on the same level that I do now. Yeah, when we learn more later about what went into it and when you really listen to all the music that's going on in the background and the harmonies and the sophistication, even one of the first, probably one of the first and uh, most commercial uses of Theron. Yep in a record like captain beefheart had used it and the beach boys had used it on pet sounds under on i just wasn't made for these times but this is like a commercial song using a whacked out instrument in a way that does not detract from its commerciality at all enhances it um, and even yeah it enhances so it. this was one of my favorite songs it still is it's beautiful in every way and i want to take a moment to say fuck you to mike love and <laughs> brian wilson because those fucking assholes sold the rights to this song to Sunkist in the late 70s. Um, and what the Sunkist assholes did is not only did they use the song in endless commercials, probably nationally, certainly in California, to sell garbage orange soda, 
but they changed yeah. the lyrics of the song to insert Sunkissed into the the uh, chorus of the song. And I can't unhear that to this day. Those commercials yeah. were ubiquitous. They drove me crazy. Yeah. I hated it even as a kid. And to this day, they have ruined one of my favorite songs by licensing it. So I hope the money was worth it to pay off whatever ex-wives but fuck you for doing this. You you ruined something that was one of the most important pieces of art in the 20th century, you assholes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. that. That's the thing. If they hadn't changed the lyrics, you would still have those associations with Sunkiss. But the fact that they changed the lyrics makes you hear that all the time you listen to it. And it kind of ruins it a little bit. Yeah. They aren't the only band to do this. But maybe the, I don't know if there's other bands that actually had them change the lyrics. They changed the uh, lyrics I don't and know put about the brand the, in the song yeah. and the commercials had right. a remake of it with the same sound to recreate yeah. that same Beach Boy sound with their brand in it. It's the, it's the most egregious right. commercialism I've ever come across. And it's the most painful one. And I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Um, all right. That was my rant about that. Again, fuck you to Sunkiss. Fuck you, Brian and Mike, for, for screwing that up. The other songs on this uh, compilation, there's some great ones. There's a category of, you know, other categories, be, be true to your school. We could talk a little bit about that. One I do want to talk about, though, is one of the all-time great Beach Boy songs, in my opinion. It's called In My Room. I'm going to play a little clip of that. There's a All right, just a, a, a little clip of that, but beautiful song, great lyrics. Another precursor to Pet yeah. Sounds, right? A more introspective subject matter. And it also gets at that. The, the thing I like about the Beach Boys with Don't Worry Baby is another one where they're not just singing about cars and surfing in a superficial way, but they're singing about it, the emotional stuff that teens go through, yeah. right? And it's like, it's this is much more like something on Pet Sounds where it's much more about the psychology of what Brian's going through. And obviously knowing his upbringing with, you know, a domineering, abusive father, this song takes on even more emotional resonance for me. And it's just a beautiful song. Yeah. Incredible harmonies again. Incredible. And another song that could be on Pet Sounds is on this a compilation called Let Them Run Wild here. I'll play a little bit of that. Yeah, we played some of that earlier. Total masterwork. can't get enough of that it's so good yeah I, I another thing is just brian has heart you know i mean they ha the songs have heart these songs let him run wild in my room they're a different side than the kind of mike love kind of teen nostalgia that and i think without brian it loses that completely and they just become this empty shell uh that's very superficial and you know, that's that's one of the reasons I like the song. I like the song just because melodically it's beautiful. I love the vocals, his vocals. I love that. Let him run. Yeah. You know, it's so good. 
Um, and just the, the wrecking crew's music is so, um, it's just beautiful stuff, you know? And I, I, again, it's gotta be my, it's probably consistently been my favorite song over the years, even though I, I go back and forth because there's so many great songs. Agreed. And you know, one of the things that you, you were talking about earlier is even though the quality of pet sounds is obviously equal to some of these, uh, songs we've been covering today, that these are actually more of your favorites. You listen to them more, um, I kind of agree. I listen to Pet Sounds, but I wind up listening to Endless Summer more than Pet Sounds. I find them of equal quality. They're so important to me, as is Pet Sounds. And I go through phases where I listen to this album nonstop. It's so good. Yeah. And it's also a more fun. Yeah. You know, because Pet Sounds is so serious. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a little darker, even though there's there's some lighthearted moments. It's mostly um, loss of innocence. You know, it's mostly a more thing, serious, yeah. mature album. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, and then smile, I almost never listen to that stuff. I don't like a lot of it that much. I appreciate it for what they were trying to do. Um, with the exception of surfs up, which I think is another song. That's an absolute masterpiece. I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me mainly because of the weird poetry and stuff. It's more of a curio and I appreciate its ambition, but I think the ambition is much more fulfilled on Pet Sounds and these early songs. Um, I think what Brian sought to achieve, he achieved. And I think with Smile, you know, it it doesn't quite hit the mark, you know, and I see why he struggled with it, because I think I think it's it's so eccentric and it's it's really interesting stuff and and brilliant. But I just don't turn to it like this stuff. I just never tire of it. And that I do sometimes. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. And I and I think that from an evaluation point of view, look, we're both, as we've just been talking about for the last two hours, we're so long on this yeah. album. We think it's not only important to us um, in terms of our histories, our personal experiences growing up, but I will listen to this album for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I think other people, yeah. not just of our age group or even older than us or even younger than us who've come to the Beach Boys later, I think, as you said, these songs are so timeless, really, and so of such high quality that people will listen to this forever. And I can't be longer on this. I, I think this is these songs are going to be an important part of the music culture and influence for decades and decades to come. So that's, I mean. I agree. You know, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's wrap up here. I know we've been uh, we've been going on a while. Are there any concluding sort of remarks you want to say about this album, the time um, for Endless Summer and, and the Beach Boys in this period? Yeah, I mean, I think we've said it all. I mean, we've kind of been evaluating it the whole time, yep. right? We, uh, like you said, this was different because there was no controversy. I think we generally feel the same way as each other about this um and uh i don't think there's much more that i can say about it i would just say to those listening who may not be as familiar with the beach boys and maybe are like well maybe i should give them another shot maybe i should ignore the mike love recent more recent decade vintage of nostalgia act yes go get on your favorite music site, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you listen to, go and listen to Endless uh, Endless Summer. And then after Endless Summer, listen to Pet Sounds. And I think if you kind of go back and forth between those two, you're going to get the most and the uh, of the essence of what we're talking about and the very best of the Beach Boys. There's other things as we've been talking about as well. But 
if you're a be if you're going to be a Beach Boys fan and you're going to appreciate it at the level that I hope you do and the, that we do, those are the two places that I would start your journey. And I just can't say enough great things about both of those. And so, well, I think we're going to have to disagree here because I think there's one other album you need to start with before these two. It's called MIU. Came out in the late '70s. It stands for Maharishi International <laughs> University. I think that's the first one you want to start with. That's really the great. We haven't talked about. It. That's really the best feature. Actually, I'm totally kidding. That's like, yeah. Even the Beach Boys love you. People talk about how it's a work of Brian's genius. I have it. It's fun and quirky and weird with weird synthesizers and shit, but it's short. You know, it sucks. I think, yeah, anything. I think I would agree. Endless summer and pet sounds are where you want to where you want to start and maybe where you would even finish, maybe, yeah. you know, I don't know, uh, you know, check out some of the other compilations and smile and stuff are, are interesting, but I would, agree. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I was just, yeah, fucking, that's, you know, taking the piss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I gotcha. Fucking, yeah. All right. We're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for hanging in there. Hopefully you've enjoyed this little bit different episode of the cultural future exchange. We're both hugely long on endless summer, obviously. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, we're actually literally long. Yeah. On the endless episode. On this endless, <laughs> endless episode. Hopefully yep. you loved it. All right. We'll catch you next time for episode six. Cool. So here we go. All right. Cool.